Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for January 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we take you through the critical care literature that caught our eye for the last month. So let's start with the New England Journal of Medicine where a randomized trial of hyperglycemic control in pediatric intensive care was published by the CHIP investigators. This multi-center prospective RCT randomized pediatric ICU patients expected to be ventilated and have vasoactive drugs for greater than 12 hours to tight glycemic control or conventional glycemic control. Now they enrolled 1,369 patients with 60% of them uh, being cardiac surgical patients which was a pre-specified subgroup. 1,500 patients were planned to be enrolled but we are told that recruitment ceased when funding stopped. So what did they find? Well firstly treatment separation occurred with insulin administered in 66% of patients on the tight glucose control arm and 19% in the conventional glucose control arm and there were differences in mean blood glucose level for the first 10 days. They report no difference in the primary outcome which was number of days alive and free from mechanical ventilation at day 30. The secondary outcomes were similar other than a decrease in renal replacement therapy in the tight glycemic control group. There was more hypoglycemia in the tight glycemic control group as expected and an increased mortality was observed in patients in whom hypoglycemia occurred. There was no difference in 12-month survival. And, but in the group that did not have cardiac surgery, the length of stay was 13.5 days shorter and cost $13,000 less in the tight glycemic control group. So overall, in critically ill children, tight glycemic control did not improve survival and was associated with increased hypoglycemia, which appears to be a bad prognostic sign. However, there was reduced hospital length of stay and costs in the non-cardiac surgical kids. So this is a somewhat confusing result and in some ways suggests benefits of tight glycemic control and potential risks. So we'll leave that one to be debated amongst you. Next up, we have the incidence and outcomes associated with early heart failure pharmacotherapy in patients with ongoing cardiogenic shock. This was published in Critical Care Medicine. So in this secondary analysis of data collected from the telarginine acetate injection in a randomized international study in unstable MI patients with cardiogenic shock, which is the TRIUMPH trial, 19% of patients received early beta blockers and 28% received early beta blockers or renin-angiotensin aldosterone system antagonists during their ongoing cardiogenic shock. So when patients with persistent cardiogenic shock who received early therapy were compared to those that did not, early therapy was associated with a higher 30-day mortality. Secondary analysis of individual heart failure medication found that beta blocker alone was associated with increased 30-day mortality in this early cardiogenic shock group. 
and that was a 33.3% mortality versus 16.9% p-value of 0.017. Now there were differences at baseline with patients who received therapy also more likely to receive aspirin, diuretics and digoxin and having a lower CK. So although there are obvious questions about interpretation of the nature of the observed association between early beta blocker use in refractory cardiogenic shock post-MI and 30-day mortality, the use of these therapies in this setting is not supported by international guidelines, which suggests that the cardiogenic shock should resolve first before initiation of beta blockers and RAS blockers. And as such, these findings suggest that the use of these agents in refractory cardiogenic shock post-AMI should be at least considered with caution. The next study, also in critical care medicine, is inhaled nitric oxide does not reduce mortality in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome regardless of severity, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this meta-analysis aims to answer two questions. One, whether nitric oxide reduces hospital mortality in patients with severe ARDS, which is a PF ratio of less than 100, and two, whether nitric oxide does not reduce hospital mortality in patients with mild-moderate ARDS, that is a PF between 100 and 300. They identified nine trials and concluded that nitric oxide did not reduce mortality in patients with severe ARDS, and that was a risk ratio of 1.01 with 95% confidence in intervals of 0.78 to 1.32. And two, that nitric oxide did not reduce mortality in patients with mild to moderate ARDS, risk ratio of 1.12, 95% confidence intervals, 0.89 to 1.42. The authors point out that nitric oxide was used in approximately 10% of patients in the H1N1 epidemic, and it is relatively expensive. Given the lack of evidence of benefit in any subgroups of ARDS and the absence of registered RCTs underway to identify populations that may benefit, the authors conclude that the routine use in ARDS should be discontinued. Next we have the treatment with neuromuscular blocking agents and the risk of in-hospital mortality among mechanically ventilated patients with severe sepsis in critical care medicine. This retrospective cohort study examines the relationship between early use of neuromuscular blockers, which is the first 48 hours, in severe sepsis with respiratory failure and outcome which was in hospital mortality. The hypothesis is that a brief early period of neuromuscular blocking agents may reduce lung inflammation. The authors matched patients treated with an NMB with non-treated patients with a similar treatment propensity using a greedy match algorithm. The matched cohort was evaluated for differences on each covariate a balance assessment to ensure that there was no statistical difference in the covariates between groups. They also performed two sensitivity analyses to examine the effect of higher dose relaxants and to assess the effect of unmeasured confounders. So they report that in 7,864 patients 
who met the enrolment criteria, there was a mortality of 35.8%. Early neuromuscular blocking agent patients, of which there were 1,818, were younger, they were 62 versus 68 years of age, more likely to be male and more likely to receive vasopressors and to require other organ supportive therapies including bicarbonate administration, dialysis, FFP or platelets. 97% of the early NMB agent patients were able to be matched with a, and they had an in-hospital mortality rate of 31.7% among treated patients and 36.1% in the matched control. So that's 31.7% versus 36%. And that's a risk ratio of in-hospital mortality of 0.88 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.80 to 0.96. So this trial suggests that early neuromuscular blocking agents may have a protective effect. Now, other trials have reported increased mortality with neuromuscular blocking agents, and the effects of severity of illness, that is, sicker patients get neuromuscular blocking agents as a final pathway, may provide unmeasured confounding. So this is probably, at best, hypothesis-generating, and not surprisingly, the authors argue that we need RCTs. Next we have the role of potentially preventable hospital exposures in the development of ARDS, a population-based study in critical care medicine. Now this study makes the proposal that ARDS is a potentially avoidable hospital-acquired adverse event. That is, that patients rarely present with ARDS but develop it in hospital, which is an interesting way to view it. So ARDS cases were matched to controls uh, using a lung injury prediction score, age, gender, sepsis, surgery, PF ratios, and the effects of exposures assessed. Hospital exposures more common among cases than controls included inadequate antimicrobial therapy, medical and surgical adverse events, hospital-acquired aspiration, and ventilation with potentially injurious tidal volumes and a greater volume of blood product transfusion and fluid administration. So the authors conclude that ARDS results from a two-hit insult, the first hit being the non-modifiable primary event and the second hit being a potentially modifiable secondary injury that occurs in hospital. And I guess that's a new way to look at this, to say that this second hit, things like inadequate antibiotics or injurious tidal volumes or adverse events in hospital, is preventable and that if we were to improve our prevention of these adverse events, we may reduce the ARDS burden. Finally, there was a viewpoint published in JAMA, ICU bed supply utilization and healthcare spending, an example of demand elasticity. This viewpoint article provides a US perspective on ICU bed supply and use. So to set the scene, critical care in the US consumes 1% of their GDP, their total GDP that is, compared to 0.1% in the UK and there's no difference in outcomes demonstrated between the two countries. 
also, in terms of the number of ICU beds, there are 25 per 100,000 people in the US compared to 5 per 100,000 in the UK. So that's five times as many beds in the US as the UK, ICU beds that is, and ten times the spending. That's a lot. And now, more US patients die in the ICU than in the UK, and although the difference in bed numbers means that there are less acute patients in the US. So what's going on? It seems that more beds in the US are reducing the incentive to keep patients who may not benefit from ICU out of the ICU. And because of this, the authors introduced the idea of demand elasticity, a sort of economic idea. Now this occurs at a national level, but also at an institutional level on a day-to-day -day basis. And what they're saying is that if we had demand elasticity or somehow manage demand elasticity, that they could reduce the ICU beds that are available on slack days when demand is low and then flex back up on busy days. And that's the concept that they raise. I was lucky enough to be at the Society of Critical Care Medicine where this, uh, the authors of this article discussed it uh, in a forum. And there was a bit of talk around this idea of demand elasticity, but also about perhaps there's a more fundamental issue, and that is, are we failing to deal with the end-of-life needs of our patients proactively? Are we failing to provide appropriate non-ICU care and avoiding saying no to surgeons and clinicians referring patients to us. So rather than deal with this unnecessary admission problem we've got, we're looking for economic arguments about reducing bed availability. So perhaps the problem is our inability to manage our resource. Perhaps the problem is that in the US there are too many beds. Perhaps it's both and it all is going to take a lot of consideration. Well, that's it for Journal Club podcast, January 2014. I hope to see you next month. And in the meantime, why don't you come to the website and have a look at the articles. Goodbye.